It's a good morning, and I'm glad to see you guys. I'm excited about what we'll look at together. In God's Word, I did want to take a moment to express uh, heartfelt thanks for those who were able to come to our elder prayer time this last week. Uh, It was a blessing over and beyond what I anticipated, and I'm so grateful for that. Many of you asked, as I mentioned in the back of the bulletin, you made a comment, we need to do this more often, and in fact, we are. We're going to try to make a commitment to it every, every couple of uh, every other month we'll set aside this time and next month we're going to pray for the announcement that Paul or Mark made about the trip to uh, Mexico we'll give you some more details about that trip the men that will be going we'll know that by then and exactly what we'll be doing so that we can come together as a church body and lift that trip up in prayer and would encourage you to mark your calendars now I've given you a date in the bulletin so please make that a priority well, as we get started, let me ask you a question. <clears throat> How many of you guys like uh, magic tricks? How many of you like magic tricks? All right, very good. <clears throat> I sort of do. Um, they're entertaining, but very often they make me feel kind of foolish. Uh, my nephew, Tyler, who's here this morning, called me this last week and said, Hey, I've got a couple of new card tricks. Can I come show you? And I thought, yeah, sure. Thinking all the while as he was preparing to come over, the poor child's 30 years younger than me, and so surely I can figure out exactly what he's doing. And so he comes over and, and does his little thing and does this little card trick, and, and I see a card, and I know what it is, and I got my hand on it, and, and he does some other stuff, and the next thing I know, I turn it up, and it's a different card, and it's the one he's guessed, and I have no idea what he just did. And so either he's using a, a, some trick cards, and I'm being played the fool, or he's using regular cards... And I'm just not smart enough to figure it out. I think it's probably the latter. But nonetheless, uh, that's the way it works for me usually. It can be frustrating, but that's also why it's entertaining though, right? Because you want to try to figure out how did they do that. (laughs) That's why magicians live by the code never to give give away any secrets to the magic tricks that they do. I remember Nico was great at doing magic tricks. And I would always ask him, how do you do that? And he would say, I don't know, it's just magic. Preserving the mystery is the key to their success. It's the intrigue of trying to figure out the trick. Because once you know how they did it, it's not all that interesting anymore, is it? That's because magic without mystery is mundane. But miracles, as we will see them portrayed in Scripture, are altogether different. You see, magic tricks... Hope to preserve an element of mystery. Miracles, on the other hand, intend to reveal it. They're important only to the degree that they they teach us something new. That they show something that's previously unseen. About the one who performs the miracle or some validation of their claims. They're only valuable as they reveal a truth otherwise hidden. The intrigue of magic is to try to figure out the tricks. But miracles can never be explained by a logical answer. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, a miracle is more than something unusual, although in ordinary speech we often say such events are miracles. But, But a true miracle is something beyond man's intellectual and scientific ability to accomplish. He says, it's not natural, even though it may be unusual. A miracle is supernatural. That is, it is from either 
God or from Satan. It's more than a highly improbable event. It injects a new element, the supernatural, into the natural order of things. Lewis says that that a miracle is, is supernatural and it's either from God or from Satan. And it's important to recognize that that those are our only two options. As you look closely at the Gospels, you see a multitude of miracles. And we see that the Gospels consistently portray Jesus as the one who is from God, who is one with God, who is of God, because the Gospels portray Jesus is God. And the miracles in Scripture are intended explicitly to validate that claim. As you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see 35 different miracles. As you look at Matthew, he records 20 of those. Mark, 18. Luke, 20. And when you get to John, there's only seven. And what's also interesting about the miracles recorded in the book of John is that five out of the seven are unique to his gospel. In other words, they're not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So as you think of that, I think it should bring us to a logical conclusion. And that is, I think John's trying to tell us something. Wouldn't you agree? And we know that what he's trying to tell us is not some mystery cloaked behind a veil. He has torn that veil wide open in the first 18 verses of his gospel. We looked at that last week. He makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the eternally existing, life-giving glory of God. That He is God incarnate. And so the miracles that He purposefully chooses to reveal show us something about that truth. They pull back the curtain and reveal that Jesus is God. He wants us to know that clearly. And that's what we'll begin to look at this morning. So if you would, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning and we begin to walk down this road of the Gospel of John, examining the miracles that you performed, we know that you weren't simply out to entertain, but you had a purpose. And that was to reveal something previously hidden, something very important about who you are and what you came to do. So as we begin our study this morning, examining those miracles, help us to see that which you really originally intended. And help us to to really understand and appreciate the significance of who you are and what you claim to be true and how these miracles validate those things. May we see what you intended us to see. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, turn to the book of John, chapter 2. John, chapter 2. And if you'll see there, it begins in the beginning of John, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, and on the third day. Now, I want to pause there because when we look at Scripture and it gives us a time, there's usually something very important about the timing. And so we need to understand what has taken place up to this point where he would then introduce this miracle is by saying on the third day. 
we do so by beginning back in John chapter 1, verse 18. As I mentioned, that's what we looked at last week. We could spend a whole series probably on those first 18 verses. But I tried to summarize them by explaining John's thesis. And that thesis is that Jesus Christ is the eternally present, life-giving glory of God. John 1, 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Verse 2, he says, He was in the beginning, was with God. All things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is eternally existing. And in that eternal existence, He had a mission. That mission was predetermined at the beginning of time to be fulfilled for the redemption of all mankind. And we see that mission portrayed in verse 4 where it says, In Him was life. That life was the light of men. He goes on to explain that further in verse 12 of chapter 1. And he says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Eternally existing, life-giving. Jesus is God incarnate. God with skin on. And so when you see Jesus, you bear witness to the glory of God. He is the eternally existing, life-giving glory of God. That's the introductory theme that John presents to us and then we'll spend the rest of his gospel validating and as he does he begins by introducing us to characters important in this narrative story the first is john the baptist it would make sense that he's introduced first because he's the one coming to prepare the way for the messiah he wants everybody to know that it is time that the messiah has come. And as we look at John's gospel, we know that by the time he is John the Baptist is introduced, he's already witnessed the baptism of Jesus, having heard the voice of God giving testimony to this being his son. And so now that he has recognized who Jesus is, look at how he introduces him in chapter 1 verse 24, 29. Let's see. Verse 29, it says, the next day, John, he's talking about John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him, and look at what he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He goes on, look at verse 34 and says, and I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist had seen enough as he had prepared the way for the Messiah, to know that Jesus Christ is that one. He is the Messiah. And as you might expect, he tells his disciples, the one that we have been talking about is here. And it's Jesus. And so what happens next in John's narrative is he tells us that one of those disciples, a man by the name of Andrew, hears this story and learns about who Jesus is, and has some type of interaction with him to the point that he goes and tells his brother Simon, who we will come to know as Peter. Look at what he tells him in verse 41. 
he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Then Jesus goes on, it says, and he encounters another man, a man by the name of Philip, and invites Philip to to follow him. Philip then goes to his friend, a man by the name of Nathaniel. Look at what he tells Nathaniel in verse 45. It says, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's repeating that same profession of faith. This is the one. The one that the Old Testament spoke of. This is the Messiah. Well, Nathaniel's probably a lot like me and you, and he hears this message and says, it sounds good, but I need to see him face to face. And he has a very interesting encounter with Jesus. Look at verse 47. It said, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Keep in mind, Jesus had not met him before this time. So Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of God. Of Israel, Jesus answered and said, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you shall see greater things than these? And one of those greater things is just around the corner. So in the days that preceded this third day, these encounters have taken place. Six individuals, if you include John, who is writing of this account, and all of them, with the exception of Peter, make this bold proclamation of faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And all but John the Baptist, who continues his mission to prepare the way for what he now knows to be the Messiah, the others then follow Jesus as his disciples and they go to a small little nondescript town known as Cana of Galilee. It's just a a few miles north of Nazareth where Jesus was raised. be kind of like Abernathy for us. Just going up a few miles up the road to to Abernathy. Not exactly the, the epicenter of world events, right? But it is the beginning place for events that would eventually change the world. Let's look at what happens there in Cana of Galilee. Verse 1 says, And on the third day, following these unprecedented events was a wedding in the Canaan, in, of Canaan, Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, 
draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom, the the guest of honor, who was about to be married, and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then they serve which is poor. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is one of those five accounts, five miracles that John records that are unique to his gospel. And I feel like I can explain this one because I believe John was the only gospel writer who was present to witness it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke haven't come on the scene as of now, so John was the only eyewitness. And I think as we look at this miracle, it's important to begin with an understanding of, of where it takes place. It takes place at a wedding. Having just finished our marriage series, I look at this as one more evidence of God's high view of the institution of marriage that He ordained. See, this is the setting by which Jesus will perform His very first miracle and reveal a very important attribute about His nature. And as we think about this wedding, I want us to be reminded of all that goes into the Jewish tradition of wedding. Remember when we went through our series, we talked about how there was a one-year betrothal period where the hand of marriage has been received and asked, asked and received, but there is this one-year waiting period, so to speak, at the end of which is a marriage feast. This feast lasts uh, up to a week and sometimes longer, after which time you would then have the wedding ceremony. So I want you to just think about this, how how important after this one-year waiting time, there's this week-long marriage feast. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? I mean, just think about your own wedding and all that it took place to... Uh, to, to, to plan and organize a one-hour ceremony. Now think of extrapolating that over an entire week and even more. This is a big deal. And this is the setting that this miracle would take place. The, the wedding party is unknown to us. We don't know who the bride and groom are. We know, though, that Mary is somehow connected, that she has some type of role in this because, number one, she's the one that recognizes that there's a problem. They're about to run out of the drink that's necessary for this, for this celebration. And the other thing that we see that gives us some indication of her importance is that she has authority to tell the servants what to do. And they listen to her. So somehow there's a connection with Mary, the mother of Jesus. But let me ask you, why do you think Mary comes to Jesus in the first place? Why does she come to him? reason I ask that is because we know from what John has said in this passage that this is his first miracle. There's nothing before this that would indicate that he is a miracle performer. So why would Mary come to him? What would she expect him to do? She has no history of miracles. Unless, of course, you count her birth, right? She, of all people, knew that Jesus Christ was something special, She knew that he was fully human because she had carried him in her womb for nine months. But she also knew that he was fully divine 
Because that pregnancy occurred without her having ever been with another man. And she also had an angel visit her, right? And that angel told her that she would bear a son who would be the son of God. She had raised him as a child and seen enough in these first 30 years of his life to know who he was. And that if anybody could help, it would be Jesus. And this issue of running out of supplies at a wedding feast was was really more than just an inconvenience. The social status of this event and what it meant to this marriage was hugely significant. And in fact, this kind of situation really did put the marriage relationship in jeopardy. And I, I believe that Mary knew the great value that Jesus had for the marriage relationship. And she knew that this would be important to him. And so she tells him what is going on. Now, look at verse 4. In response to her request, Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Now, when we first read this, it sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? And maybe even a little disrespectful, but we need to understand that in the cultural context of the day, he was being polite to her. The, the term woman is kind of like us saying ma'am, right? Ma'am, my time has not yet come. It, it really was a polite gesture. But the main point of what Jesus communicates is that his mission in life was to do the will of the Father and no one else. You see, Mary had come to her, with, come to Jesus with, with a personal dilemma about a, a local limited situation. But Jesus knew that he had a divine mission that ultimately would impact the world. And so I believe Mary understood his point because she understands who he is and ultimately what he came to do. And so what does she do? She tells the servants, do whatever he says. I believe what happens at this point is that Mary relinquishes her control of this dilemma and places it in the hands of Jesus. Her reaction in this situation indicates that she trusts him, that she essentially is saying, I'll leave this in your hands. I know you'll do the right thing. And then it says that Jesus will choose an answer to this dilemma in a way that is consistent with his mission. It's something that helps his disciples and and in turn you and I know something about who he is. Look at verse 6. It says, Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons of water each. This Jewish custom of purification very likely had to do with the washing of the feet. This was foot washing water. Okay, with that many people over that period of time who've been traveling distances in those nasty sandals, the first thing they would do was wash their feet before they went in. And that water was being used for that purpose. But as you think about that, consider how much water's there, right? Six jars, 20 to 30 gallons each. Now, remember, I don't know if you remember those big water jugs that you used to put upside down and drink, you know, that water out of the container. Those are five gallon jugs. Okay, so it's five of those or four of those per jar. That's a lot of water, isn't it? And Jesus then tells the servants, 
would you please fill each of those jars with water? And it tells us that they fill it to the brim. Now, I think that's important because it tells us that nothing else can fit in that jar. It's full to the brim. And it likely took some work, don't you think, for them to do this? Remember, think about how much water that is. And they couldn't go over to the spigot and just turn on the hose. (laughs) They didn't have plumbing. If they were going to get that much water, they would have to either go to a well and one gallon bucket at a time pull up that water or go to a river somewhere nearby and do the same. Nonetheless, it probably took a lot of work. And after all that was said and done, Jesus instructs these servants to take a sample of this water to the head waiter and let him take a drink. (laughs) Now Consider what just happened. He asked the servant to take some foot-washing water and go give a drink to their boss. That's pretty significant, don't you think? The head waiter is their boss. This was a bold step of faith by these servants. They're the only ones that know what's going on in this situation. So they do as they're told. They take this sample to the head waiter. He drinks it and looks at them. And I bet the first look was, oh no, this is not going to be good. But then he says, wait, wait, wait. Why are you giving the best wine at the end? And he calls the groom over and says, look, this is unusual. It's your wedding. That's fine. But nobody ever gives the best stuff at last. We see that this then allows this wedding ceremony to carry on. And nobody really knows what's just happened except for the servants and the disciples and probably Mary. And verse 11 tells us of the significance of what just happened. It says, this beginning of his signs jesus did in cana of galilee for this purpose to manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him that's important it says the glory of christ was revealed and the disciples believed those are two important statements and we need to consider the the value of both of them and so let's just ask the question how was the glory of christ revealed in this miracle And as you ask and answer that question, think about what just happened. He turned water into wine. He turned water into wine. This is an act of creation. He didn't create some recipe of ingredients where he put a bunch of stuff together and like a magic potion, boom, something new appeared. He turned water into wine. Without a word, without a gesture. Remember what we read earlier when John said all things came into being by him? And now Jesus is performing a miracle to show how that's true. Let me ask you something else about the quality of wine. Isn't there a unique characteristic about wine? And let me give you a comparison. What if it was grape juice? Right? If it was grape juice, all you do is take some grapes and maybe sweeten it with a little sugar and then instantly you have grape juice. What do you need to make wine? Time. You need time. And so in an instant, Jesus created something new with a history to it. What does that sound like to you? Creation. Just go back and look at the account in Genesis. What you'll find is that when God created life, He didn't create it in an embryonic stage that it then grew to become something. 
It says, in fact, that if you look at the, the, the account, that when he created, on the day he created the fruit trees, they were bearing fruit. On the day he created the birds, they were flying above the earth. And when he created man, what was he? A man. And when he created woman, woman. In an instant, he created all things with a history. And when Jesus Christ changed water into wine, he did the exact same thing. It's an action attributed only to the hand of God. And it says the disciples believed. Now, keep in mind, these are the same disciples as we looked at that have already made a very bold profession of faith, haven't they? That Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, the King of Israel, the Son of God. But remember what we talked about last week, that according to the Jewish tradition, all these things could be fulfilled by a man like them. But a man like them could not do what Jesus just did. They believed because they're beginning to understand the divine nature of the promised Messiah. They began to understand that this may not be exactly as they had imagined it to be. So as we read an account like this, I think the best way for us to understand how this applies to our life is to put ourselves in the story to consider what it would be like to be one of these characters in the story. And let's begin with Mary. A good question to ask ourselves is, are we willing to relinquish our control and leave it in the hands of Jesus like she did? See, she did not know what Jesus would do. She knew who he was, and she was willing to trust him, and that was enough. Many of us, many of you, like Mary, know well the identity of who Jesus claims to be. But are you willing to trust Him with the dilemmas that you have in life? See, Mary wasn't trusting a particular solution to her problem. She simply said, do whatever He tells you to do, and she walks away. And in the account, we never hear from her again. She didn't know what He would do. But she did believe that he would do the right thing. That whatever he did would be the highest good. So think about situations in your life. Things that don't have an easy answer, but they have significant consequences to them. Real dilemmas like Mary encountered. They could be struggles in your marriage difficulties in your family and and challenges with your kids or, or problems in the workplace. Can you take those concerns to Jesus and then leave them in His hands? Not knowing exactly what He will do, but trusting that He will do the right thing. And in the end, what He does will accomplish the greatest good. Will you have the faith of Mary and relinquish your control? Now, let's shift gears and put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. Let's consider what that might look like for a moment. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. That confession was real clear early on in the account. 
But they also had a picture of what that would be. I think what Nathaniel said was probably the clearest representation when he said, Jesus, you're the king of Israel. You see, they were expecting that Messiah to come to rule and to reign. And they were excited about what was in store for them. But would they allow Jesus to be something more than they had anticipated? Would they be able to hold the expectation loose enough to be surprised? Would you be willing to let God surprise you? You know, you can look at miracles like this, and there's a risk of trying to read too much into them. But I I think there are some important things that are clear as we go through this particular miracle. And one of them, I believe, is the fact that he used the jars that were used for purification according to the law of Moses. And he turned it into something altogether different. Where what was new was exceedingly better than what was old. See, the law was given to reveal sin. But Jesus came to forgive sin. The latter significantly, exceedingly better than the first. John, in his gospel, told us in verse 17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The latter significantly better than the first. The other thing I want you to realize is that the supply of this miracle was over and beyond what they could have possibly needed for this event. Okay, If you extrapolate it out, at a minimum, they had 2,400 servings of wine that were available to them through these six jars. There's no possible way that they would work their way through that much. And it should remind us that God's grace it works the same way. It's exceedingly abundant, more than we could ever ask or imagine. I know for a fact that so many of you here this morning have such a strong grasp on the testimony of Jesus. You know your Bible well. But let me ask you, are you willing to learn something new? Does your heart remain teachable so that you can grow in your faith? Is the joy of the Lord alive and well in your life? See, because stagnant faith is a lot like stagnant water. If you let it sit there long enough, it gets stinky, smelly, and it's just not very attractive. It reminds me of a statement that Chuck Swindoll made one time. He says this. He says, In vain I have searched the Bible looking for examples of early believers whose lives were marked with rigidity, predictability, inhibition, dullness, and caution. Fortunately, grim, frowning, joyless saints in Scripture are conspicuous by their absence. Instead, he says, the examples I find are adventurous, risk-taking, enthusiastic, authentic believers whose joy was contagious even in times of trial. Their vision was broad even when death drew near. Rules were few and changes were welcome. So let me ask you, does that describe you? Does that describe you? As you walk with Jesus, do you let Him take you to those places? Places of adventure, of of risk-taking, of true authenticity. Where the joy of the Lord is contagious, 
in your life. Because if your walk is rigid and predictable and absent of joy, then you might not be following Him in the closeness of fellowship as you think you are. Are you willing to know Him well, but still leave room for Him to surprise you every once in a while (laughs) with something that you didn't quite expect? Finally, put yourself in the shoes of the servants. Here you are just doing your job. And this strange man who you've never met before comes up and tells you to do the ridiculous, to interrupt your job and fill these jars with water. And as we talked about, it was no small task to do what he asked them to do. But their sacrificial obedience was the requirement for them to be able to witness this miracle. So let me ask you, has Jesus interrupted your life lately? Are you willing to listen to his instruction and then do what he says? What if it's inconvenient? What if it's potentially embarrassing? Will you do what he says? Let me remind you that we cannot experience the miracles that He has in store unless we're willing to follow Him in obedience. So has Jesus interrupted your life lately? You see, God's instruction is always intended to bring us to the place where we understand something important about Him. He always comes through. Very often, He puts us in those situations where we're left with that dilemma. And we have to say to ourselves, look, if God doesn't come through on this, This isn't going to work. And I want you to know, that happens for me every single Monday. As I get ready to preach the sermon for the next Sunday. And I have to tell God, if you don't show up, this isn't going to work. So in effect, you're you're observing a miracle every Sunday. (laughs) But that's where God wants us to live where we are dependent upon Him in such a way that he allows, it allows Him to do great things beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. That's because Jesus Christ is the eternally existing, life-giving glory of God. And let me urge you with all my heart to trust Him with the heart of Mary, to learn from Him with the heart of the disciples, And to obey Him like those servants. That's where you come to know Jesus. And ultimately, that's where His glory is revealed. I pray that you know Him in those places. Let's go to the Lord together. God, thank You for the truth of Your Word this morning. The power of miracles and the way that they instruct us in something about Yourself. They reveal things. Truths are important for us to know. And what we see clearly this morning is that you, Jesus Christ, are the eternally existing, life-giving glory of God. And everything came into being because of you. And when you changed that water into wine, you demonstrated that you are the God of all creation. And you make things new. And what is new is far greater than what is old. And it is over abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. Lord, help us come to those places where we may not understand and those dilemmas that we face in life, what your answer will be. 
but we can trust you that you will do what is right and ultimately accomplish the highest good. Help us learn from you. Protect us from being stagnant in our faith where we're unwilling to be surprised by you because we've, we've got it figured out. May it never be. May we be lifetime learners, continually surprised by the goodness and greatness of the God we serve. And to be in those places, may we be faithful in obedience to you. And even when it seems ridiculous, even when it seems like it would cost us something, that in order to witness what you have in store, that we would be willing to obey you, to go where you lead us, to trust you. And then in those places, may we see your glory revealed. Where we stand amazed and know that there's no other way this could have happened were it not for the grace of God. May that attribute mark the lives of every single one of us here this morning. It is in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we ask these things. Amen. Have a great day.